I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're talking about Ginsburg dissenting in style, redistricting, and we'll interview Gabe Roth from Fix the Court. So last week, Justice Ginsburg continued her speaking tour, and she spoke at Addis Israel Synagogue here in D.C. Uh, she talked about judicial independence, collegiality among the justices, sort of the standard the things. Usual. The usual. Uh, but she also hit on some more personal topics that I wanted to briefly mention. So she talked about lessons that she learned from her mother, who passed away when Ginsburg was in high school. One of these lessons was, one was to be a lady, which means to be in control of your emotions and not to give in to remorse and envy because according to Ginsburg and her mother, these emotions sap your strength and keep women from moving forward. The other lesson was to be independent, which I think Ginsburg has definitely taken that one to heart. <laughs> uh, she emphasized the importance of being able to fend for yourself. I think uh, those are some pretty good lessons. I think so, yeah. So Justice Ginsburg also talked about her faith, and there was one story that I wanted to mention. So I think she said this comes this came from early in her time um, on the court. There apparently had been complaints from Orthodox Jewish lawyers who became members of the Supreme Court bar that the bar certificate, which many people frame and proudly display on their walls, that these certificates refer to the year of our Lord for the year when the attorney was admitted to the bar. So Ginsburg said she went to the chief, who would have been Chief, uh, chief Justice Rehnquist, mm -hmm. Rehnquist at the time, and he said, if in the year of our Lord was good enough for Brandeis, Frankfurter, even Goldberg, but then Ginsburg cut him off before, as he continued to make his way through the list of Jewish justices, before he got to Abe Fortas, and she said, it's not good enough for Ginsburg. <laughs> so in the end, she won out, and uh, she was able to, to get the paperwork changed so that there was more flexibility in, in what the bar certificate would say. So I'm a member of the bar, and I check my certificate, which I keep proudly on, on my wall, and it mine does say in the year of our Lord, but I'm glad to hear that Justice Ginsburg was able to make this change possible to, to accommodate people of other faith. But the real big headline of the night was Justice Ginsburg's handbag. So she comes out onto the stage and she's got this little black handbag emblazoned on the side with the phrase, I dissent. Uh, and apparently inside the handbag, she had a passage from Anne Frank's diary. That's great. And we need I dissent handbags. I agree. Though maybe with Justice Scalia's face on them. Or I, I could do a Justice Scalia uh, bag or, yeah. or maybe just the phrase I dissent. I would yeah. be okay with that, And I'll too. just say that I found out about this because <laughs> Elizabeth texted me in the middle of the night talking about how Ginsburg carried this bag with her. Um. <laughs> I was really excited. <laughs> so turning to uh, what the Supreme Court is up to. Yeah, not a whole lot this week um, since they're still in recess. But they did um, issue a couple of orders. So in a redistricting case out of North Carolina, the court granted a partial stay, and this was um, broadly a racial gerrymandering case. Uh, but the lower court had held that several state legislative districts were racially gerrymandered um, and that two of those districts uh, violated state law timing provisions, and the court ordered the maps to be withdrawn. So the Supreme Court blocked two of these redrawn districts in Wake and Mecklenburg counties, which encompass um, some major cities, including Raleigh and Charlotte. And both of these districts were the ones um, found to have violated the state law. And the state lawmakers asked the court for a stay um, and said the lower court had participated in a hostile takeover of the state redistricting process. Um, 
Of note, Thomas and Alito said they would have granted the stay in its entirety for all of the redrawn districts, while Ginsburg and Sotomayor would have denied it in its entirety. Um, So I guess the other five justices thought the partial stay was the most appropriate. And now the state legislature will likely file a petition and ask the court to hear argument in the case. Interesting that it wasn't the, the new conservative troika Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch, since we're seeing them yeah. together so frequently. It is. Uh, so I guess conservatives can have individual thought. <laughs> so turning to the Pennsylvania gerrymandering case, the Supreme Court declined to intervene in a partisan gerrymandering challenge to Pennsylvania's federal congressional maps. So Justice Alito is in charge of emergency appeals from Pennsylvania, among other states in the Third Circuit, and he denied the Pennsylvania Republican legislators' request for a stay of the state court decision. Um, he did not refer the state to the full court. Uh, so this means the Pennsylvania court's ruling will not be on hold while the legislators appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. So the Pennsylvania court held that district lines had been drawn to favor one party, uh, one political party at the expense of the other, and directed the state legislature to draw new maps by the end of this week, which is why the legislatures the legislators sought, uh, sought a stay. So I believe that the new maps will go into effect for the 2018 midterm election. So for now, the Supreme Court is not getting involved in Pennsylvania's case, but the justices already heard the Wisconsin partisan gerrymandering case last fall, and they're also going to hear oral argument later this spring in the Maryland partisan gerrymandering case. So we'll see how those rulings might affect Pennsylvania's. We're pleased to have Gabe Roth with us. Gabe is the executive director of Fix the Court, which is an organization that advocates for more accountability and transparency at the Supreme Court. So, first of all, as a disclaimer, Heritage has not taken a position on any of the reforms we're going to discuss. Yet. And we personally (laughs) have some mixed thoughts about them, but we nonetheless want to have um, a conversation and hear Gabe out. So, with that, welcome to SCOTUS 101, Gabe. Thanks so much for having me, guys. So, first question, uh, what is Fix the Court and what's your main objective? Sure. So, Fix the Court is the only nonpartisan organization in the country that advocates for greater transparency and accountability in the Supreme Court and really extended it to the rest of the federal judiciary. The goal is to make the 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 federal courts uh you know as, as they go kicking and screaming you know push them into the 21st century <laughs> now i think there are reasons that the apolitical branch is different from congress and the executive but uh in, in terms of you know elections versus like uh appointments and, and such as as is laid out in the constitution but but by and large we want a government that's open that's honest that's transparent that's accountable we want to know what the justices' conflicts of interest are, if there are any. We want to be able to see them do their public exercises if we're unable to fly to D.C. for oral argument. So generally, it's just trying to get the third branch, which for years has been lagging behind basic good government transparency and accountability measures, to, to move forward and, and then sort of open up in a more uh, open and uh, uh, modern way. So how did SCOTUS transparency become your line of work? Like how? Sure, yeah, it's, 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 it's a good question. I actually went to grad school uh, for journalism. So one of the first, and it was in Chicago, it was at the Mozilla School of Journalism in Northwestern. And one of the first things I ever did was cover, because it's Illinois, was cover uh, voir dire for a governor of Illinois who was about to undergo a <laughs> corruption trial. And I just thought it was so odd that, you know, I'm here and I'm taking my notes and, and you know, as the trial progressed, 
but there were no cameras in the courtroom. The, there were no transcripts of what was going on in the case that day. At that point, I don't remember if they were recording audio, but if they were, they weren't releasing it for a while. Now they do same-day audio in the Seventh Circuit. But you know, it just sort of got me interested in this whole idea that you have this whole branch of government that the vast majority of the country doesn't know what's going on. And, and you know, okay, not everyone is Governor Ryan of Illinois, but everyone, you know, has health care and was uh, uh, is, is potentially concerned about uh, life issues and the death penalty, and is concerned about you know all, all sorts of other things that the Supreme Court touches on. And I think that just raising the level of uh, and so I was involved in politics. So back to your question, I was involved in politics <laughs> in D.C. and a lot of my clients, whether they be working on issues of marriage or voting or other sorts of things, had cases at SCOTUS and they just they couldn't get here or it would cost them a lot of money. So. I started this uh, something called the Coalition for Court Transparency, just trying to get cameras in the Supreme Court. After some time, I realized it wasn't just this lack of cameras in the Supreme Court that made it what we like to call it the most powerful, least accountable uh, part of our government. It was also, again, the lack of the knowledge about the recusals and conflicts of interest and financial disclosures, et cetera. So I just sort of expanded. So I, I ditched the coalition because it's a lot easier <laughs> to work with consultants than with coalition partners, um, as you probably as you may realize in D.C., and so, and so, just sort of went went fully forward on on this, you know, sort of watchdog view, and, and realized, you know, look, there's no there's no partisan bent to it, and part of what I think the job is, you know, Justice Kennedy always says the Supreme Court is a teaching institution. Well, if it's a teaching institution, then it would be nice if it taught the American people what it was doing, and I think through, you know, better uh, internal mechanisms, whether it be more online material or, you know, allowing cameras in or putting basic things like financial disclosures online, uh, the more American people can know about it. And frankly, more of the American people can trust that it is operating as it should. I mean, I'm not, I mean, fix the court sounds nefarious, but it's not. It's just, you know, that was the best URL I could come up with a few years ago. It's more like we want the rest of the country to realize the courts holding our <laughs> democracy together. But that doesn't work well as a dot com. <laughs> uh, so tell us about some of the reforms that that you guys advocate for. Maybe your your wish list. Sure. So, so I think... You know, I, I sort of alluded to them, but I think now, um, you know, the I'll, I'll talk about what I'm working on for 2018. So the main thing when I think about broadcast is, you know, we're on a, a radio show right now. I think that, you know, immediacy is my issue. I don't think there are going to be cameras in the courtroom, in the SCOTUS courtroom anytime soon. But uh, there is live audio in the D.C. Circuit. There is live audio in the Ninth Circuit. The Fourth Circuit has the capability to do it. The Seventh Circuit is working on it. The Supreme Court itself has live audio capability. They they had a after the main Justice Scalia memorial in the Great Hall, they actually moved into the Supreme Court courtroom and had a 20 minute bar memorial, which was carried at livestream.supremecourt.gov. So we know they can do live audio for oral argument, at least have the technology for it. So I do want live audio in the courtroom. Um, I want, you know, term limits is like our second platform. I understand that also is going to be cha- a challenge, but I, I think that what's important for me is to be ins- to ensure that the justices and really the rest of the federal judiciary have age-related health resources. Despite the fact that you know Trump's doing what he can to get as many judges on the lower courts and even one on the Supreme Court, possibly more in the future, you know, there's still plenty of 80 and 90-year-old judges. And again, the vast majority of them are doing their job as they should. But every now and then, you know, you you've got to start working worrying about uh, mental capacity and mental acuity. So I'm trying to push for judicial wellness 
proposals throughout the judiciary, and I've done that with some success. Um, and then just to mention a couple others real quick, um, trying to get the, the justices to adopt a code of conduct. There is no code of conduct that applies to the justices. They generally have to file, follow recusal statutes in terms of, you know, they can't rule on cases in which they have a monetary or familial conflict of interest, but there's no larger ethics code like the lower judges have or like doctors have or like a lot of other professional associations have. So I think that you know, having a code of conduct would just put everyone on the same page and know what is expected out of the justices when they accept you know, free flights to Puerto Rico or, you know, free bus to Abe Lincoln or, or whatever the, the sort of <laughs> gifts that they've gotten over the years uh, may be. So so really uh, an ethics code, uh, health, age related health resources and, and live audio are the three big wish lists for this year. So the issues of cameras in the courtroom came up during Gorsuch's confirmation did, hearing. Yes. Um, so who did you bribe? We didn't bribe. Just, uh, I get that question in. Just, I, mean, well, I, I, I definitely took credit for that happening, but it was no, just a lot of a lot of meetings with uh, Senate Judiciary <laughs> Committee staffers. Yeah, we're just kidding. Um, but there have been proposals in Congress to there require have. the court um, to allow filming of oral arguments. Um, so, how has the court generally responded to these efforts? They don't like the efforts. I mean, every single justice, when they have testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee during a confirmation hearing either said that they would support cameras in the courtroom, like Justice Kagan said as recently as 2010, or they would be have an open mind, is what uh, Neil Gorsuch said in uh, in 2017. So everyone's been, you know, there were for it before they were against it. Uh, when they get on the court, <laughs> they sort of they switch their tune and say they're against it. I, I think that it's more, from my sense, it's more generational. I think you've got individuals on the court who were born in the 30s and the 40s and sort of grew up in an era where, you know, filming wasn't ubiquitous. Though some of them do have grandkids with smartphones, as we know. And then I think some of the younger justices are, are, are okay with it, right? So like Alito uh, did it was you know all about doing a cameras pilot program when he was on the Third Circuit. Sotomayor has been okay with it. Uh, uh, K- Kagan, I mean, she said she's against, but I think you know I think uh, she she at other times had a, um, indicated being in favor of it. So so yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's generational. I think the congressional proposals are good. The biggest problem with the congressional proposals is that there's so many, right? So there's one that's just the Supreme Court. One that's all federal court courts of appeals, so you know one through eleven D.C. Fed Circ and SCOTUS, and one that's like some combination thereof. One's like district courts as well. So it's hard, sort of, you know, what ends up happening every sun, you know, every sunshine week of odd numbered years when new, you know, right after new Congresses start is that they just do a copy and paste job. Um, so you know, so I think that for better or worse, and I would say I don't I don't know what I think about this, but you know, Grassley and Feinstein have been wor- worrying about you know other hammer and sickle related issues, I guess, more uh, <laughs> these days on their committee. But uh, but you know, they're the committee of jurisdiction, and, and they're generally supportive. But you know, it seems like a lot like so many other bills that are before Congress, it'll just you know, control C, control V situation every every two years. So hopefully, the lower courts, the federal circuit courts, getting cameras and getting uh, live audio will will push SCOTUS in, in, in the coming years. Wasn't it David Souter that said something like, you'd have to roll them over my dead body? And he's still alive. Yes. So, yes. you know, he, uh, that's, that's a tough yes, one. I think I can imagine him coming out of, you know, hiding in from, the woods in, yes, in Vermont, just to, to um, you know, speak again his opposition to cameras in the courtroom. Wouldn't, wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> so just as a practical matter, if the court did uh, have its arguments available on C-SPAN, like you can watch you know, the Senate proceedings and things like that, do you think a lot of people would actually watch it? And also, I have a concern that it would lead to a lot of grandstanding by certain justices. So give me your thoughts on those two Sure. So I, I think people would watch for the larger cases. I think that if you look back in the last 
10 years, you know, like, so it's what, 2008. So there were, you know, a couple major gun cases. I think those would have turned out a lot of people, obviously a lot of same sex marriage cases, DOMA cases, uh, healthcare cases. I think, I think those types of things you'd have, you know, easily, you know, six, seven digit views on, uh, if you keep track of that, some of the, some of the more, Obscure cases, some of the ERISA cases, <laughs> maybe not. Um, patent cases, yeah, lots of patent. I mean, cases. I'm not sure I would even watch those. <laughs> you know, maybe the slants case probably probably would have been popular, but uh, you know, that was that was uh, Mattel v. Tam. But but no, but I think that I think people would watch, um, and I think people would learn. You know, the, the thing I like most about going to the Supreme Court, and I don't have you know I don't have a Supreme Court bar membership. I got to stand in line just like everybody else. Is seeing you know the you know. Clarence Thomas whispered to Justice Breyer or Kagan talking to Alito. Like these are people with, you know, everyone thinks total polar opposites ideologically, like coming together, talking together and and sort of trying to figure out a complex problem, which is what oral argument is. And it's one of the best things the government does. It's just a shame that the rest of the country can't see it. In terms of whether or not it'll change oral argument cameras, I don't think it has just empirically looking at state Supreme Courts and courts of last resort in foreign countries that had not that didn't have cameras and then had cameras, mm-hmm. very little has changed. Almost nothing has changed. Um, and especially given, you know, c- compared to a lot of other courts, the the short amount of time that you get at SCOTUS to have an argument, usually just 30 minutes per side, there's really no time for grandstanding. And that's sort of bored out in the data from that, that we've seen from other countries and other states. Yeah, I, I think it was for one of the gun cases, it might have been for Heller, they did uh, delayed audio like maybe an hour or two after the actual argument. Yeah. And I think they ran it on C-SPAN and they just had pictures of the justices' heads kind of floating around like a screensaver, which is kind of like uh, the John Oliver thing with the dogs. Yeah, you know, I, the prefer, dog I, I mean, I prefer the dogs for yeah, obvious I lo- reasons. Yeah, I but... love the dog Scotus. <laughs> no, so yeah, so the Supreme Court has released same-day audio 26 times in its history since 2000. So the first for Bush v. Gore, last for Obergefell v. Hodges. Hopefully they'll release same-day audio again for the travel ban case. That's where a lot of the... The action in the transparency community will be will be will be focused. So we'll keep you posted on that. But we're going to try. <laughs> so you mentioned things haven't really changed um, in courts that have had cameras like up to this point. Um, but don't you think like in in modern in the modern world, like it's likely to change things? So, for example, like the judge in the Larry Nasser case um, mm-hmm. saying some unjudicious things, um, yeah. which seemed to me like it was kind of grandstanding and. Um, my main concern is like how this would could change the advocacy of um, of people before um, before the court if they you know if they realize judges are going to um, do these and they're just going to be showing clips of things that could be you know misleading and not getting the big picture. Sure, I mean I think you know to, for the Nasser example, I mean you had testimony, this very gripping testimony. You don't have testimony at the Supreme Court, right? A lot of, you know, the OJ case has, you know, him pretending not to put on a glove. You don't have exhibits <laughs> or juries sure. or any of that. So I think it's just in terms of the stuff that makes up a Supreme Court case, there's a lot less stuff. So I think that just makes it easier in terms of both from a broadcast perspective and also from a potential for, for, for you know, grandstanding. I think that, that makes it a little bit easier. Also, the justices aren't running for anything. So, you know, Nas, the Nasser judge uh, was potentially going to run for state Supreme Court. So I think that's that's also a, a thing. And then in terms of the, 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 the attorneys, judges from all sides of the Spectrum justices from all sides of the spectrum have said that they prefer having a small Supreme Court bar and repeat "quote unquote" offenders, you know, repeat presenters, repeat attorneys. So I don't, I don't think your, uh, you know, your Carter Phillips and your uh, uh, Tom Goldstein's and your, um, you know, 
Paul uh, Clement. Paul Clement, exactly. Can't I was, forget friend of the podcast, I was, Paul Clement. I was, I was, I was, I had his picture of his face in my head, and I was just like, why am I blanking on his name? It's the bright lights of the of the studio. <laughs> um, so oral argument is such a small part of what the court does. It and, is. You know, they release opinions, which are you know fully reasoned, and they share with the world their reasoning behind. Um, you know, their decision. So so why the focus then on um, the oral argument when it's a small, such a small part? Well, I think I, I want to I want to I want to take another. I, I, OK, so it's definitely a good question. It is true. You know, as Justice Breyer says, oral arguments are only 10 percent of what we what we do. So, you know, what the Supreme Court, there's actually three lines to get in. Right. So there's the Supreme Court bar line. If you're a lawyer, a member of the Supreme Court bar, you have a shorter line. There's the public line, which, you know, usually starts at sometimes days before, sometimes hour before. <laughs> then there's a three to five minute line where you get to stand and, and, and for three to five minutes see part of the Supreme Court argument. So I just wanted to go check it out one day. And I was there for Westby versus D.C., which is this case where there was a party thrown by a woman named Peaches, I think. Yes. And uh, which you've discussed on the pod. And, um, you know, uh, a bunch of officers were uh, given fines, essentially, because there was no probable cause to arrest these party goers. Well, I'm standing in one of these lines and one of the party goers just randomly shows up to me. He's like, oh, I'm here for my case. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, I was at the party. I was like, oh, okay. So he's just, he's a DC resident, works for DCPS. I'm not going to say any, give any more details uh, than that. But he's just incredibly curious about what goes on at the Supreme Court. He had never bothered going to the Supreme Court. We only got there for three minutes. The three minutes that we're in there, he hear, I think he heard questions from Kagan and Sotomayor, and he was just blown away. He's like, I never thought about that. I never thought about, you know, the issue, you know, how the police officer could take it this way or how, you know, a party goer, you know, somebody just walking by who might have like, you know, I think Kagan said, like, I was at a party where pot was smoked, but that doesn't mean I'm a pot smoker, you know, (laughs) and like he was there for that. And I know, like, you know, fine, people may make the argument that things would be taken out of context, but just from this one personal vignette to see, like, his mind was just totally blown open by you know, first of all, I think he thought all the Supreme Court justices were male, so I think it was very important for him to see three <laughs> three females up there. I didn't know if he realized the racial diversity as well, so I think that was also important, just because you know DC is so segregated. Um, and so, you know, I think just just being able to sort of relate to the justices as individuals who aren't these like you know uh, uh, oracles in in, in <laughs> robes, but are actual people who attended parties where you know some stuff was going down. I think really just. <laughs> helped him open his mind to to where the different perspectives were going to be coming in this case, and eventually, mm-hmm. I mean, this was overturned, you know. Yeah. But but I think like that just helps this educational aspect, whether it be three minutes at a time, sixty minutes at a time, or you know, sometime in the future in a other educational setting. So shifting gears a little bit to one change that the court has made recently, the new website and its electronic filing. Yeah. What do you think of it? Is it everything that you hoped? It is. Uh, <laughs> I'm actually very pleased. I mean, I th- the there were a lot like when it went live, there were a lot of crazy things going on. Like, uh, like the first day, I think it said, you know, that they were going to hear oral arguments on January 1st, 2018 for a case that was argued in like 2016. Like there's just like a lot of glitches. It was my sort of thing, healthcare.gov. Yeah. <laughs> my, my screen was like entirely red. Red, yes. like red You're seeing red. I just assumed because I was on a, like this old PC that I was, that was me. But if it was you too, then I feel better. But yeah, it was, exactly. It was all red. It was like, uh, uh, you know, like a Game of Thrones type theme or something. I don't know. But so, you know, it was, it was weird. But 
it, once the glitches were fixed, it was a lot better. It's just so nice to like not having to worry about like you were going to Amazon Web Services, you know, site through Scotus Blog to mm-hmm. get. You know, it was, it was nice to just have everything housed on the page. In terms of the attorneys that I've heard from, they seem again, it was a little glitchy at first, but they seem to like it. And I think that you know, given that you know, we're not talking about thousand megabyte or gigabyte files that we're just talking about, you know, basically PDFs. It's 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 an easy thing to do. They did it well, and they should be you know, credit where credit is due. Um, so can you go into a little more depth about any successes you've had, and did you have a hand? in the Florida Supreme Court agreeing to live stream um, arguments yeah, on Facebook? Yeah, that's happening, uh, well, <laughs> not not today as the listeners are listening, but today as, as we're recording. Um, I, I didn't work with Florida. I, I decided not yet to work with, with states. I think that that's, uh, that may be in, uh, in the 2019 plans. But... Uh, but I was happy to see that. In terms of in terms of successes, um, so one thing that you know people may not realize is that the justices are required to file their financial disclosures each year, uh, part of the ethics of the Post Watergate Ethics and Government Act. And for years, you had to pay twenty cents a page and pick it up actually across the street from where we're sitting at now at the Thurgood Marshall Building on Mass Ave. And it was twenty cents a page. You never knew when you were going to get it. We've been lobbying them for years to just change the practice, and now you get them on a thumb drive digitally, and they you can pick them up or you get. And so that's that's something better. I mean, little things like that. Another big thing is three of the nine justices own individual stocks. Uh, Roberts, Alito, and Breyer own things like, or they used to own like Exxon and Microsoft, like blue chip stocks. Um, you know, over the last three years, they went from collectively owning 76 individual stocks to now they own 53 individual stocks. So we're trying to push them to be, you know, a little bit more circumspect about their investing, so they're not potentially, you know, the last thing we need is another four-four court, another eight-member court to have. You know, I think Alito recused from a case because he owned like 30,000 bucks in stock of a Wisconsin tire company. Like that's silly. Like we don't need that. <laughs> like just sell the stock, invest in mutual funds like your like the other six folks. And move on. So that's that's something uh, big. And then you know we're hoping to get some. Uh, uh, we've got we've got some FOIAs out there from the, from the U.S. Marshals and from uh, from DOJ, just trying to, to, to figure out a little bit about you know we want to be sure that the justice's security detail is uh, above board. So uh, so we're working to uh, to see to see if that's if, if that's going on. And the last thing is we have gotten a lot of judicial wellness committees started in the circuits. We wanted a national judicial wellness committee to tackle the issue of aging and mental decline. We were turned down, so instead we've gone circuit to circuit, and in about half the circuits there is a judicial wellness committee that's helping uh, judges, aging judges, with health-related resources. I think that sounds like a really, a really great reform. Thank you. Um, so, one final question we ask all of our guests here at sure. SCOTUS 101: If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, yes, who would you pick, and what would you talk about? So this is this is hard. I mean, Mar- <laughs> you know, either Marshall actually is just you know comes to me as as uh, as, as one of the the first, just because I've. You know, so many questions about, you know, what Marbury versus Madison wrought and then so many questions about, you know, being an advocate for the other Marshall Thurgood uh, on one side to then becoming a justice. But I think, you know, I've been reading recently about uh, Louis Brandeis and what it was like being the first Jewish justice. And, and probably no surprise here, I'm Jewish. And, you know, I think he and I, I mean, I grew up in the South, but, you know, besides a few random incidents, uh, you know, never really faced anti-Semitism. And I know their you know, anti-Semitism, unfortunately, is a little bit on the rise in the last few years. But. You know some of the stories about the things that he had to deal with being Jewish at the court in terms of some you know, just not gaining the respect of of some of his peers. You know the first like full on like knockdown drag out 
um, confirmation hearing was his confirmation hearing um, about 103 years ago. So you know, so well, and wasn't didn't one justice I don't remember who it is off the top of my head like leave the leave room, the room yeah. whenever he would speak. Yeah, so mm-hmm. I think McReynolds, but that's the yeah, thing. Nobody yeah, knows McReynolds, and everyone knows who Brandeis is. So I think I think uh, you know just having a conversation with him about what he faced, what it was like. Uh, would just be would be really illuminating for me, um, and and you know nowadays with so many of the justices being Jewish, it's it's obviously not not uh, not an issue, but it's still a very fascinating and unfortunate part of Supreme Court history that I would like to learn more about. Sounds interesting. So I would encourage all of our listeners to sign up for Fix uh, the Court's daily newsletter, SCOTUS Daily. It's funny and also educational, uh, highlighting the news of the day at the Supreme Court. So we will tweet that out from our SCOTUS 101 Twitter account. But we're going to wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia, Random Justice Fact Edition. Love it. (laughs) So uh, we stole these trivia questions from a panel discussion at Harvard Law School at their bicentennial celebration last fall. So there was a discussion with all of the justices who were graduates of Harvard Law School. So uh, these questions come from that discussion. Are you so ready? all the living justices? Yes. That are okay. That, that went, went to, to Harvard. Harvard Law. Yes. That's that's like what like eighty three of them. <laughs> I think it was it's six of them, right? <laughs> Several of them. Several. Yes. Okay. First question. If yes, you're ready, I'm ready. Okay. This justice became an Eagle Scout by the age twelve. Oh man, Eagle Scouts! I was never in the Boy. My dad was in the Boy Scouts, which, uh, if you knew him, would make you laugh. But I, uh, I was not. Um, I'm gonna guess uh, Justice Kennedy. No, it's actually Justice Breyer. Justice Breyer. Yeah, yeah, and it's pretty remarkable because I think usually Boy Scouts don't reach this rank or level or whatever. She was like you call the end it. of high school. Yeah, yeah, end of high school. So age twelve, he was. A, Wonder what his uh, uh, Eagle Scout uh, project was. You know. He did did not, they mention it? He did not ah. talk about that. So I'll have to do some, some research Sub- and find out. Submit a letter. Yeah, submit a letter, letter to the court. <laughs> so this is a transparency issue. Yeah. Yes, it um, really is. And that's yeah. really that's what you do is you write letters to the court. It's like me and you know Jeff Manier and Scott Harris love writing each other letters. It's fun. <laughs> okay, second question. This justice participated in a mock sword duel while what? he was at Harvard. That sounds incredibly dangerous. Um, David Souter. Yes. Yeah. You are right. He just so, seems like he lives in the mountains, you know. He seems know, resourceful. But he seems like he wouldn't be the kind to engage in a it's duel. It's very low like, technology. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but he, so he was cut um, during this duel. And one account, um, in one account, he said a group of well-oiled students accompanied him to health services. Now, Tiffany so asked maybe, me what well-oiled meant earlier. I'm assuming he means they were loaded. They were... <laughs> Had been drinking heavily. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess that makes that's, sense. That's frankly like better than any other thing it could be. You don't <laughs> yeah. want like a bunch of like greasy, greased up law like, students. <laughs> you know, give them, give them the, op- the options. I prefer that. <laughs> Next question: um, Which justice only uses contractions in dissenting opinions? Oh, that's a thing! Wow, um, it's a thing. <laughs> okay, who, who? Just going around the bench here. How about Justice Kagan? Man. That's right. So Justice Kagan said that, you know, when you're writing for for the full court in a majority opinion, you need to be a little more formal. But when you're dissenting, you can kind of let go a little bit and use contractions. So that's how she. Does she have a handbag, hilarious. though? An I dissent handbag? <laughs> I wish. Yeah, I they know. should all have them. OK, next. This justice visited Baskin Robbins nearly every day <laughs> during law school. And bonus points if you can name his or her order. Um, 
I mean, I already guessed Justice Kennedy and was wrong, so maybe I'm going to guess Justice Kennedy and be right this time. <laughs> no, it was the chief. Oh. Um, yes, Justice Roberts. So he ordered a marshmallow sundae with chocolate chip ice cream almost every day. Huh. <laughs> it just seems weird. Like a marshmallow Switch sundae. Switch it up. I don't know what that is. A sundae with marshmallows? Yeah. I don't. It That's... sounds pretty good to me. Um, I don't know if I could do that every day. So last question. This justice did not shave all summer after the Supreme Court term. Oh, this is easy. La- last yeah, summer. This is uh, Neil M. Gorsuch. <laughs> that is correct. And he said he hadn't had a summer off since he was 12. So he enjoyed it and didn't shave. I tried to Google Google this, but there were no photos online. And so there were some I'd really weird like things to see. that popped up, right? Yeah. So don't like <laughs> I, listeners uh, don't Google Neil Gorsuch beard. <laughs> I'd advise against that. <laughs> well, I think you did a great job, and thank you so much for joining hey, us. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and please leave us a rating if you enjoy listening. You can also follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery and Tiffany Bates. Sound designed by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersat. For more information, visit heritage.org.